Hi, listeners. Welcome back to Rhetorically Speaking. We know it's been a while. Um, we're really excited to share today's episode, and we're sorry that it dropped late. We were expecting to drop this closer to Thanksgiving. Alas, the pace of the Stanford quarter and the holiday season got the best of us, so we're dropping this a few weeks late, but we hope it was worth the wait. Thanks for your patience, and stay tuned. Accessibility and Education is up next. Spaces are often designed for a particular set of users, right? And the funny thing is, oftentimes you think when someone is designing a space, they're trying to design it for a particular kind of public, but that gets generalized as an able-bodied public oftentimes. I have a very distinct memory of a graduate class that I sat in on, and midway through the very first class session, the captioner interrupted and said, excuse me, can you please speak a little bit louder? I'm, I'm trying to capture this for the class. And the professor erupted in the middle of the class. And I don't remember his exact language, but he was like, how dare you interrupt me? How dare you try to tell me how to speak? And it was very clear to me in that moment that that professor did not understand what access meant. And he only cared about his own performance rather than the act of learning and conveying knowledge. Welcome to Rhetorically Speaking, the podcast that explores how and why rhetoric matters. I'm your host, Cassie Wright, and on today's episode, we tackle a problem that touches the lives of every parent and child in America, accessibility and education. We're asking questions like, how do we design classroom spaces inclusively? And what are the consequences when we fail to do so? How do we talk about access and student learning generally? That's what we explore today, rhetorically speaking. Up next... Janae Cohn interviews our colleague and disability studies scholar, Lindsay Dolickfeldt. Welcome to Rhetorically Speaking, the podcast about how and why rhetoric matters in the world today. On today's episode, we're thinking today about what do our spaces say about what we value? So I'm Janae Cohn. I'm here in the program in writing and rhetoric. And here to have this conversation with me today is uh, Lindsay Felt. Hello, I'm Lindsay Felt. I am a lecturer in the program in writing and rhetoric. Very interested in these questions. As a student, I grew up using assistive technology um, for to help me with my hearing loss in the classroom. So my own journey in using these kinds of technologies and thinking about classroom spaces has dramatically evolved over time due to the changing nature of the classroom spaces as well as the demands um, of those classroom spaces and the kind of learning that we were doing in those spaces. I used to use FM systems for hearing aids and so those would essentially <clears throat> just magnify the teacher's voice, the individual speaker's voice, but it was often difficult to follow classroom conversations or classroom conversations with this device because people would have to pass it around. And so 
I started to recognize that there were certain challenges with having a kind of democratic classroom space rather than having an individual teacher. And I supplemented that with a kind of rudimentary version of note-taking where I had an individual sitting with me in the classroom space typing manually on a computer but not using any particular technology. And it was very slow, it was very tedious, but it, it helped me capture the information. And then when I got to college, I, I had a little bit more resources at my disposal. And so they, the college that I went to brought in real-time captioning, which relies on a kind of stenography. So the stenographer can type in smaller phrases and capture information more quickly. Um, but there was a moment when they wanted me to experiment with remote captioning, which essentially demanded that I had to set up a computer in the classroom and a microphone, and that the captioner was from some distant place capturing this conversation. And there were a lot of technical issues with that. And I often felt um, resentful in a way. I felt like this was not equal accommodation because I had to go out of my way to set it up. And there was so many technical issues that it ended up becoming a distraction. Did you have to get to like class early then to set up your own captioning system at the front of the room? I did. I had to carry the equipment around in addition to my own computer or laptop. Um, I had to educate the teachers or the lecturers, the, the professors, and that took time. And Many of them were somewhat te- technologically inept about it. <laughs> so, so there were a lot of real challenges with that. These are just like a few of the experiences that I've had in the classroom and have really encouraged me to think more broadly about, well, one person's accommodation can actually be truly beneficial for everyone. I would often have my friends or colleagues lean over my shoulders and read along with the note-taking because they had a hard time following the discussion. And so I started thinking about these questions and have been always thinking of them when I started to teach in my own writing and rhetoric classroom and how to make my materials, how to make my delivery as accessible as possible, knowing that sometimes that effort could create additional barriers, but also knowing that ultimately it could truly benefit everyone. Do you want to say a little bit more about uh, your interest in technology and disability? Like what, what, what about looking at how tools can open up or close down access? What about that interests you? Well, so some of this stems from my own personal experience as a user of bilateral cochlear implants. And <clears throat> to explain to those who might not be familiar with this, cochlear implants were developed, I think, roughly... 40, 50 years ago as a rudimentary way to sort of hack one's neural system. Um, and it's a fairly um, invasive surgical intervention where you wind an electrode into an individual's cochlea and it enables them to hear the, a greater variation in the frequency of sound. So it's essentially computer and electronically mediated sound. And it's been absolutely transformative for me to have cochlear implants. But there are often times when I realize that I had become more reliant on my cochlear implants. So when they're not functioning or they're malfunctioning, then I feel oftentimes more disabled than I might have before. So 
that individual experience with cochlear implants really led to kind of an intellectual journey um, into how into people with disabilities and their evolving relationship with technology because oftentimes we think of technology as inherently rehabilitative or corrective, right? But my experience was was not just that. It was it was more than that. Sure, I, I got cochlear implants because I wanted to hear more and because I made a conscious decision that I wanted to participate in an able-bodied hearing world, which some might have some questions or ethical concerns about in the deaf community. But for me, it, it was more complex. It was more than just um, enhancement. And it, I have sort of like this intimate, like really intimate relationship with our technology. And I think all of us do, you know, with our iPhones and we just have this sort of interdependency. And so I thought that people with disabilities historically in my own research were a really interesting population to explore for the ways that they used it beyond just kind of the medical discourse, but for their own learning. And I was especially interested in how people with disabilities adapt technologies that were maybe geared towards a wider population or that excluded them and tinkled with them to the extent that they made those technologies better and more effective. And in turn, how some of those hacks or adaptations trickled back down to how these technologies were designed and created. Can you say a little bit more about some of the controversy around choosing to get something like cochlear implants? Because I think for a lot of um, able-bodied people, it would seem like an obvious decision, right? Like, why wouldn't you want to be able to participate in like the hearing able-bodied world? And I think sometimes when we talk about technology too and like our intimate uh, connections, um, when we talk about it like with the iPhone, some people refer to it as like being detrimental to our health. Yet when we think of something like a cochlear implant, again, I think the average sort of able-bodied person wouldn't think of that as being like an addiction or a problem. It would be seen as like only this really good and powerful supplement. But maybe you can talk more about that debate because I'd be curious to hear like why some people wouldn't want to choose that or how they might see that as problematic in the same way that maybe we talk about other technologies being like problematic in our dependence and intimate relationship with them. There's a couple of different responses. Um, the one that I was personally weighing, so I was 18 years old when I got my first one, is, is the cochlear implant, is it truly going to help me? Because there is a small chance that it might actually put me in a worse position than when I began. And it's very unlikely, and the techniques have improved over the years, but I was given, I think there was something like a 3 to 5% chance that the cochlear implant would just not work for me, anatomically or physiologically or for device failure, et cetera, things like that. And that was, that seemed like a really high number to me, and that scared me a little bit. So I had to really weigh, do I keep going with the existing hearing and the hearing aids that I've done pretty well with for the last 18 years of my life, or do I take this kind of leap of faith? to try something new that could actually give me a full, a more colorful and fuller range of hearing. Um, there, were, there were some other considerations as well, but 
there was a lot of talk at the time and there still continues to be about other kinds of interventions to help people with hearing loss, such as stem cell um, research. And once you get the cochlear implant, it tends to essentially destroy whatever residual hair cells you have left. So you're essentially saying goodbye to whatever residual hearing you have. And that, that's a pretty big trade-off that some people are not willing to make. So those were some more kind of granular questions that I was grappling with. But then there was also this other tremendously impactful cultural side about making that choice, which is coming from the side of deaf culture. Um, deaf culture in the sense that these are individuals, and I don't necessarily identify as a capital D deaf person because I'm not linguistically literate in sign language. But I have friends that are part of deaf culture, and I appreciate and value the rich community of deaf culture. And for people who privilege sign language, the cochlear implant essentially was claiming or giving, giving the message that it's not okay hmm. to, be, to be deaf and that we actually prioritize and privilege hearing over silence or over sign language. And so in the back of my mind, just thinking about, well, is this, is this true? Like, am I taking a move making a move that is essentially sending a message that deaf people are not valued in this world as, as a culture and the kind of um, communication that comes out of that culture. Um, you know, another, another consideration I had was I actually have a very privileged choice to be able to even partake in this process. And the whole population's for be, that are economically under-resourced that cannot take advantage of this technology because they don't have health insurance. And it's a very expensive procedure, and it's also extremely expensive to maintain. All the sort of accessories and the devices and the, the, the maintenance that comes with it. And so I was feeling my privilege, too, in that moment, um, also, as a U.S. citizen, because cochlear implants tend to be in places or disseminated in places where either healthcare is strong or there is some sort of universal healthcare. I, I wouldn't say as an 18-year-old I weighed all of those options equally, but as I've gotten older, I can kind of reflect back now on that decision and um, that it was always a choice for me. It wasn't, you should do this, and I really appreciated and actually realize how lucky I am that it was framed to me as a choice by my parents, by my doctors, by my audiologist, by my support team, because it is an incredible commitment, psychological and time commitment, to actually get value out of a cochlear implant. It's not like turning on a switch. You have to put months, if not years, into getting the full use out of it, and you need a support community to truly make your sort of synthesis with the device successful. So now that you've lived for many years <laughs> with your cochlear implants and you had the support and you, you've adapted, do you think that you're still, do you still worry, I guess, about implicitly sending the message that you don't value sign language or that you're privileging 
hearing over other forms of communication? Absolutely. Um, I don't really have a good answer for this. I think a lot of it has to do with the way I was raised. And I think my parents sort of came to this crossroads where they were given a choice by occupational therapists to say, you can keep your daughter on this path of speech that she's already begun, and she already has pretty good speech and listening comprehension skills. And that was in part because I wasn't born deaf. I was born with some hearing. I was actually born with full hearing, and it wasn't until I was three or four when I lost my hearing. So that was a choice available to me to continue on the oral path. Um, or you can teach her sign language, and you can put her on this other path, and that might mean a different kind of life, right? So some of that kind of goes back to this choice that my parents made for me, and it just it always felt like the right one for me. I think I was able to navigate the hearing world well enough that I never felt truly excluded. I think if that were not the case, then I would have gravitated more towards sign language and deaf culture. Um, But I've tried to rectify this over the years. I've taken sign language classes. I've tried to learn about sign language. I have friends that sign, but I think, and I will take full responsibility for this, just the people that I've surrounded myself with on a day-to-day life, they do not speak sign language. And like any language, if you don't practice it, you can you can lose that literacy very quickly because especially because it's such an embodied language. So there are times when I I often think I want to get back to this. I want to become fluent, but for whatever reason, there are either cultural barriers, social barriers, community barriers, and those are maybe some that I've erected for myself. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how the choices we make communicate what we're privileging and valuing because I mean, I'm, what I'm hearing in, from you is it's really complicated yeah. that your decisions have this long history and all these different interpersonal factors that impact the technology you chose mm-hmm. the life you chose and the modes of communication that you've chosen so I guess to to bring this back to the classroom for a moment I'm wondering how we can communicate this range of values and how we can honor the complexity of our students' own choices, mm. right? Because I don't think we, we want to make any assumptions either about what our students are choosing to communicate with and through because as, as we just heard from your story, it's there are, are just so many things from parents' decisions to friends' decisions to economic decisions. So I'm wondering how we communicate to our students the range of choices they have, how we work towards resisting, privileging right. any one technology or any one mode of, of being and learning right. in, in the classroom. What do you think? Yeah, that's a, a thorny question, but one response that I've tried to sort of live in my own teaching practice is just offer a range of modalities, right, and ways to access particular documents or activities or course materials and to actually build in those options for students on a day-to-day basis in the classroom rather than waiting for them 
to come to us and ask for or hand us an accommodation letter. And so on the very first day of class, we go over the syllabus and I take some time to talk about my accessibility statement. And as I've consciously decided to call it an accessibility statement rather than a students with disabilities statement. And I changed the language to reflect my own personal philosophy on inclusion and access in the classroom rather than one that's provided by our disability resource office on campus. And I think that's been pretty transformative, just being open and kind of framing it as a dialogue. Come, students, come to me if you're not sure what you need or you need help figuring out what you need or think you know what you need, you need but don't have the resources or the means to get that. So that's kind of the first step. And then I try to model that with the, the class materials and the activities that we do. So let's say we have a written document. I offer students a printout if they want one. I also simultaneously provide a hyperlink to the original document so that they can access it and read it. And for students who might want to use screen readers, I, usually that's typically accessible to them, and so on and so forth. I, I try to also choose objects that and materials that are inherently accessible. So rather than showing a video that doesn't have subtitles, I'm going to pick that video that does have subtitles. And that's also useful for me. I need subtitles too, and I tell students this. So those are just some of the, the ways that I build in choice or try to frame learning as a choice, right? Mm -hmm. um, another thing that I do that I've implemented the last few years that I think has actually really kind of leveled the playing field, but maybe I could take it even further, is creating a time bank and assignments for students. So they are given, let's say, 24 to 48 hours, no questions asked to take an extension on a major assignment. Because oftentimes, one of the most frequent accommodations students ask for is extra time. And so I try to build that in so everyone is given that choice rather than, again, having a student request that and trying to make a retrofit. And I think mm. every, all the students appreciate that. They turn in better work. They can manage their anxiety and the pace of the quarter so much more effectively. And it also puts them in a position of authority and gives them some autonomy over their own learning so that they actually have to be and anticipate some of the scheduling challenges that they're going to have. Um, and I think th those are a few things that have been successful for me. Thank you for sharing your stories, Lindsay. Thank you. That's our show. Thanks so much for listening. This episode was recorded on the unceded land of the Mawekma Ohlone tribe. I'm privileged and grateful to work here. This episode was produced by me, Cassie Wright, and co-producer Janae Cohn. Special thanks to Lindsay Dolickfelt for her time and expertise and wisdom and wit. And a special thanks to Blue Dot Sessions for their wonderful archive of podcast-ready music. Um, if you are somebody who listens to and or makes your own podcast, you should check them out. Um, we'll have links to tracks uh, on our show notes page. Don't forget to check us out on our show notes page. And if you like what you hear, 
head over to iTunes and give us a thumbs up, rate us. It really helps our show's traffic and visibility. And if you want to participate or have an idea, reach out to us at retspeakingpodcast at gmail.com. That's retspeakingpodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at retspeaking. So this will be the final episode for 2019. We'll see you in January 2020, where we talk to Christina Ramirez and Jess Enoch about rhetoric, history, archives, and mestiza rhetorics. See you then. <laughs>